Hello, I'm Marcus Relton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity's been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots. In this six-part series of the Scotscare podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have also forged a life in the capital away from home and about the ups and downs that can bring. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Doug Carnegie, a TV producer who rose to the very top of the game. Doug's worked on news, current affairs and factual entertainment. He was the man in charge of programmes such as Crime Watch and The One Show. In his time, he's worked with the likes of Claudia Winkleman, Nicky Campbell and Victoria Derbyshire, to name but a few. Like me and so many others, he's a Scot who has left his homeland and these days very much calls England his home. Scots Care. Hi, Doug. Hello there. Thanks for doing this. Pleased to be doing it, Marcus. Yeah, well, somebody said to me you just moved house. Is you, are you settled? Um, <laughs> settled. Yeah, we, we're actually six months in to... Uh, a move out of London to uh, Northamptonshire. And um, if somebody had told me I would need to slap on 110 coats of paint on doors, I probably would have stayed in London. But I've done it, and uh, and that's not we haven't got a lot of doors. It's just that the guy before us stripped them all, and I hadn't realised that each side of the door would take five coats. Um, so, so there you go. But I'm paying myself top painter rates, and I'm now on, <laughs> I'm now think- on very good gardening rates as well. That, well, that, that's, I think when you go and look at a house, I remember my wife and I moved house about four years ago and we went to, and we bought like, we thought it was a doer upper and the learning curve has been huge because we <laughs> went and we, you look at it and you think, oh, that, every ceiling is our text and nothing's been touched since the 60s. Oh, no. But we can do that. We can. And yeah. then you move in and you just have this massive reality check of, I, I actually can't do this at all. I, th- I think probably the one thing worse than, you know, uh, possibly a year in solitary confinement is deciding that you're going to strip Artex yourself. I know. Well, yeah, I've not, you know, just don't look up. Yeah, Life's too short. That's what my dad said. Never look up and never look at anything below eye level. So as long yes. as <laughs> just don't look around. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes it a bit hard when you've gone to the Vatican to see the Sistine ceiling, but still... <laughs> Now you 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 moved from Scotland to London, you said, and now now you've moved out of London. Whereabouts? When where were you brought up? I was brought up in Peterhead, uh, north of Aberdeen, and uh, was there till I was uh, about nine. Then we moved to Aberdeen, and uh, I was there till my late teens and and uh, university really. And did you move south for university? Yeah, I was at Newcastle, which, as you know, is just a southern outpost of Scotland. And, you know, I've enough Geordie pals who would nod their head at that. Um, Yeah, I came down to London for the first time uh, as soon as I left Newcastle. And I remember I sold all all my university books. I had a suitcase full of them. And uh, I sold them all. And uh, I I came down to London with £8.50. Wow. And th- this is why, I mean, Scots care means a lot to me because I came down to London. I, I moved into a flat with a bunch of guys in Haringey and I was a year in London and it was probably the most miserable year of my life. I was uh, unemployed for a bit of it. 
I had really, you know, dead end um, jobs. I was selling magazines in Hyde Park and Victoria Station. I was doing door to door social surveys for Oxford University. It was in Shepherd's Bush. It was it was absolutely miserable. But because it was London, I was pretending I was having a rather fine time. In fact, it was dreadful. I went back to Scotland with my tail between my legs after about a year. Peter Heed is a bit further north than where I'm from. I'm from Glasgow. but And, and I've been down south. I've been in and around London now for almost as many years as I, as I was in Scotland. But I, I still oh. remember moving down because it, it's a big city to be alone in, isn't it? it exactly that. And, uh, and that was my first experience of it. If you don't have enough money... You've got your nose pressed up against the windows of all the opportunities that London has, you know, great shows, great theatre, great cultural events, all the rest. You can't afford any of them. And so uh, it's the worst of all worlds because you haven't got enough money to kind of enjoy what London has. And it's not a place to be. It's not a place to have low resources in. And uh, I, I found it absolutely dreadful. And I just kidded myself for a year that I was having a good time. And then I owned up and went home. But then you, you ultimately came, you came back and you've gone on to forging your career down here. So how did you, how did you come back from, from the north of Scotland well, back down here I and think, then start I think, work? I, so I went home to lick my wounds. I, I, I wasn't intending to go back and kind of stay in Scotland particularly because you know, by that point, I was, I, I think the London time, I was, the first time I was just you know, sort of playing on the seashore, you know, with my mates and so on, thinking I was having a good time and wasn't. And um, then some ambitions coalesced. I'd always wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a journalist from, from when I was 15 years old. My parents, bless them, were very keen uh, I went to university because nobody else in the family had done. So that kind of derailed that a little bit. And then in my early uh, to mid-20s, it came back. I was working in America in, of all places, a, a rehab center for schizophrenics, as they were then called. Um, and um, and this whole place was a reaction to the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I, I was working in a place called Fountain House in New York, which is still there, uh, God bless it. And what it did was empty the wards of Bellevue and take in people who'd been in straight jackets and sleeping 40 to a dorm and started training them up to get them back into life um, in, in small manageable jobs and so on. It was a wonderful, wonderful uh, place and it just really opened my eyes. I tried to get into the Columbia School of Journalism and they said, yes, but it'll cost you £9,000 a year. <laughs> and my dad said, well, we could afford three, son, but that'd be about it. So I cut my cloth and went to um, Cardiff, uh, the journalism school at the University of Wales, which was certainly then it was the best one in the country. There were only a couple. And uh, I was lucky enough to do well there. And I got a scholarship to the Sunday Times. So that was was actually my third stay in London. And that was the first time that I felt... I was on top of London and not London on top of me. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a few bob. Um, a, a friend had given me a, um, a flat for the summer because she was away abroad. 
and everything was tickety-boo. Most of the Sunday Times staff were away on holiday, so I've got lots of stories to do. And they paid you 15 quid a paragraph on top of your uh, wage. And, you know, Harold Evans was the editor, great Scotsman Magnus Linkletter was the news editor, and David Blundy, foreign correspondent, who was sadly killed in Nicaragua, took me under his wing. So it was just, that was the best time I'd as yet had in London as a Scot. Did you ever cross swords with Derek Jameson? I, I used to work for him. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say cross swords. So, yeah, Derek Jameson. Yes, I remember Derek. Well, I, I used to book Derek for um, a Friday night debate show that I had on ITV that I produced for uh, uh, a lot of years. And, and Derek would uh, would come up and, yeah. uh, you know, and put, point his fingers at people and be amusing and, and, and so on. And in fact, um, there was a spin-off um, for, uh, ITV so liked him. He 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 did a, a very watchable program. I mean, you probably wouldn't get away with it now about how uh, foreigners view uh, Brits, and it was called with Derek Jemison uh, aptness. Do they mean us? Yes. Oh yeah, I remember and, that. Uh, yeah. And it was quite good. I mean, he added to the gaiety of nations. He was he was a character, and he was he was relatively honest. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say, you know, a programme that you wouldn't get away with. I mean, I, I have massive respect because he kind of gave me my first break. I started as a, a researcher on his Radio 2 show. Oh, and brilliant. Then, and then a producer left and Derek suggested that I kind of step up and be the producer. But at the same time as I was the producer of his of his Radio 2 show, Doug, I'd walk into the studio and he'd give me a list of stuff and I thought it was maybe guests and it was mm-hmm. his shopping list. It sent me off to Morrison's or Safeway as it was in Byers Road in Glasgow. And do you know what? Something that stayed with me 25 years, right? And this is the thing that's probably, not probably, you just couldn't do nowadays, is that he kicked me up the bum really hard once. And he must have been, he he was a young man at the time, and I got something wrong, Doug. I got a name, I got an age wrong. It was somebody who'd been involved in an accident, a young girl, and I got her age wrong. And he said to me, I, I couldn't say to you what, because it was it was just expletives. And he chased he me around. He was not the, very happy about it. Oh, he chased me around the radio studio. And you know what radio studios are like? They're two massive, heavy, yeah. airtight doors. And I managed to get the first one open, but I couldn't get out the second one fast enough. And he just kicked <laughs> me right up the bum. You made me look like a... And then the rest of yeah. it was just... In um, my early days, I, I worked at a paper um, in Birmingham. It was an offshoot of the Birmingham Evening Mail, the Sandwell Daily Mail, and it had a Scottish news editor. Um, should I name him? Probably not. And he was tyrannical in that Jemison way. Mm. And I, the first day that I was there, I arrived in the office and uh, and he had somebody by the throat and their feet were off the ground and he was he was kind of pushing them against a wall and 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 shouting things at them and uh, when he saw me this he let this guy slip to the ground and he took the guy's jacket threw it out the window into the high street and said go and get that no what do you want that was my first day and I mean, it, it, it was just extraordinary. But he was hugely talented. Uh, you wanted to please him, mm. um, uh, and he nobody made you feel better if you did well. Well, this, so, this is the thing, isn't it? This is the balance. That behaviour is never ever acceptable. But no, of course not. In some, it was like Jameson as well. Got away with the way he treated me, but 
personally, this is only me speaking. Do I regret what I went through with him for what I learned? Me personally, yeah. probably not. But I think he could have scarred a lot of people by that kind of mental tyrannical behavior. That you yes, I mean, it's it. Of course, you find out who you are when when somebody treats you like that. But of course, it, it's a lottery, and and it, it's no way it's no way to treat people. But um, if um, it's bullying behavior, but mm. there's there's two ways to react to a bully and that is to be better than them and to be better than their treatment and um I, but it's old school isn't it scott's care supporting scots away from home in london i want to talk about something that you had a lot of success with where when you were the man in charge of the one show and really kind of what i wanted to i mean we all know what the one show is and the things that i was thinking about when i knew i was going to speak to you is that I don't watch much television, but then you get stuff like the one show that everybody watches. And when you took that on, is that something you're nervous about? Because, you know, that had 5 million viewers at its height. And there's obviously a secret sauce to these shows that just, it's just magic. Now, what is that secret sauce that makes something exceptional? And secondly, is it something you were hugely nervous taking on? Yeah, but I think it's a good thing to be hugely nervous. I've always been hugely nervous um, until you get on the pitch. And then I'm actually massively calm. I mean, I've seen pandemonium happening around me and I sort of inversely, I just go really calm. Uh, and and it's not something I try to do. It's just the way it happens. I'm, it's interesting. I was um, I was briefly a newsreader when I, when I was a, an on-screen reporter at ITV. And I remember reading the news with Anne Diamond one night. And before we went on the half a minute before we went on air, she was all over the place, lost the script, couldn't remember what her interview questions were, was, you know, tearing her hair out, literally. I was as calm as anything. Uh, and then as soon as we got on air, I was a nervous wreck and she was absolutely ice in her veins. And I thought, reading the new I can't do this mm. I just can't do this because it's gonna in order to look calm I'm gonna kill myself uh, and and I thought I just I it's great experience and I got off it and, and decided that I would far rather produce things so I'm the guy that has to be calm before we go on air and, and on air in prospect of the one show there were an awful lot of people involved it was the biggest BBC commission in its history yeah. Uh, so because it was massive, because it involved all the nations and regions and dozens of indies and so on. And, you know, we were showing, you know, half a dozen films a night uh, at 30 films a week. That's, you know, hundreds and thousands of films a year, all commission. It was a massive, massive exercise. So the one thing I didn't feel was alone, the idea... I mean, people used to say to me, oh, you based this on Nationwide, didn't you? And I said, no, I'm much older than that. It, it, it reminded me on The Tonight Programme when I was a kid, which was a, an evening magazine show, which was really the first opportunity for the BBC to sort of slightly kick its shoes off of an evening after the news so that you would have colour pieces and features and so on, and quite serious stuff all mangled up together. Mm. And... It's a great satisfaction to me that the one show is is constantly kind of caricatured as is, is, is going from the, the you know the dangers of obesity to um, the plight of you know some 
a rodent on on, on the riverside or how you, how you make a cake and i've always thought what i don't understand the problem with that i mean people people sitting at home watching the program don't have a problem with that because that's the way conversations go yeah uh, and I used to get that when I was working at ITV. I, I ran a debate show which combined a lot of really serious stuff with absolutely flippant uh, things, provided they were in the news. So we would move from how do we deal with Gaddafi, Sh- you know, should we talk to the IRA, and in part three, do big girls have more fun? Because it had been a story in the papers that week. Um and uh, and it was honest. And people say, how can you go from one to the other? And I say, well, that's the way human conversations work. Yeah. In human conversations, you don't say, and now for something completely different. But the early days of the one show were hard because you did have to slalom between a topical story or a topical guest or somebody, a serious guest. I remember Mia Farrow, you know, she wanted to talk about a charity in Africa, which was fine, but we also did want her to talk about Frank Sinatra, Peyton Place, Woody Allen, and quite a number of other things that were of reasonable public interest. Um, And getting her and the show to go from the one level of seriousness to to one less serious, um, and we became famous for these um, handbrake turns that was a difficult to kind of weave that in the early yeah. days, but we, we got better at it because we realised that's the way conversations go. I mean, I, I look at people on, on the telly that are presenters and I kind of think, oh, I like you, but I don't like you. Or, and yeah. I, can say, I can say I don't like you before they've even said something. And when I watch stuff like old version, old, old episodes of The One Show, I think Adrian Childs, I always felt like I could have went to the pub with Adrian Childs. I yeah. could stand at the bottom of my garden and, and and talk about my my lawn with Adrian Charles and yeah and as a as a boss and a mentor were you able to spot that talent and say you are going to work and you are not going to work yeah to a degree i mean i th- i think that's a, a good example actually because the the whole point about adrian uh, and and i think successful pre- presenters uh, although adrian's you know come a few croppers you know but, you know he would say himself um is that the narrower the difference between how a presenter is on air and how they are off it is the key to their success. And it's the key to them staying sane. And it's the key to the viewers liking them because the one viewers may like or not like somebody. And uh, the, the great trick is sometimes when they don't like somebody and they still watch. Um, but what they loathe is inauthenticity anything fake uh, and so yes i mean adrian was very much the character uh, off screen that he was on he didn't become somebody else he didn't go and i've seen presenters who just go ding you know and they're on you know that that, that plenty of names i could name but won't who were good on air and and even some of them who managed to fake authenticity quite well um, oh yeah, sincerity. If you can fake that, you can you can go a long way. As somebody once said to me, it's um, interesting you saying that people watch because they like you, or people watch because they don't like you. And I, yeah. I kind of think if if you if I had to name somebody like that, I think somebody like Piers Morgan mm. is one of those people who's he's an extremely polarizing character, and people absolutely love him. Uh, but yeah. as many people probably can't stand him, but watch because they just think, what the heck is this guy going to do next? 
Yes, exactly that. I, I famously re- remember being in a supermarket, a little hungover on a Saturday morning after a, a Friday night show that had gone well. And uh, the, 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 the debate show that I did was a Friday night show. Some people used to say it was the nearest legal thing to cockfighting um, on television. Uh, but we just thought it was good, honest debate. And it was uh, we wanted to be different from Question Time, which I thought processional and formal and, you know, panelled up and the audience were separate and so on. And we wanted a, a much more kind of democratic affair. But not everybody liked it. And I remember... Um, being the supermarket kid, getting the Saturday shopping in, you know, a couple of twin boys, you know, biting my ankles, um, my lads. And um, I heard this this uh, bloke um, in, in front of me in the queue saying, did you see that programme last night? I can't stand it. Did you see it last night? They had, you know, so there was a guy who couldn't stand this programme, but he was tuning in. Yeah, and I thought, I you know, when you when you've got that, you're probably that's as good as it gets because if there's a marmite quality, but they're still eating the marmite. And I've always felt about TV; it applies to the one show, and it applies uh, to debate shows and all the rest of it. And people used used to say to me, "Well, yes, but I mean, you know, there you were discussing Northern Ireland, but you know, what did you solve in in you know in that half hour discussion?" I say. Television doesn't solve problems, but it might give some people some ideas as to how they might then spend several years trying to. And the one show, when it does a three-minute um, item uh, on how flu is spread by doing infrared tests in a house and showing all the doorknobs clattered with influenza uh, viruses, that's a small and useful thing that somebody might then go and look up an NHS app and get more info on and so on. Television starts things, it doesn't finish them. And you that's the joy of TV. But does it have a hmm? duty to educate? The BBC spend millions well, on educative online content to back up their programmes. Yes. Yes, I, well, I do think it, it does. Um, I don't think all television has to do that. I mean, Lord, Lord Reith um, uh, had had three uh, tenets. I mean, it was education, information, uh, and and entertainment. And and I don't I don't actually see them as being mutually exclusive. Some of the time, you know, there's some terrific television that um, will will give you all of those things. I mean, I was watching. A documentary the other night. I really just stumbled on it. I I don't do much casual watching a TV, but I, it was a walk with Paul Merson. Oh yeah, and 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 he was just walking through the Yorkshire Hills with with a selfie camera. And what was extraordinary, he was just. I mean, he was walking through these wonderful dales and Yorkshire countryside up near where he used to play in in Middlesbrough. But he'd never really gone walking in his life. I mean, he knew the inside of a pub like the back of his hand, but he didn't really know dry stone dikes and woodpeckers and curlews and all the things that he was finding on this walk. And and it was just an eye-opener. Now, that was educational. It was absolutely informative about this guy who has looked at life through the bottom of, of, a, of a glass for, for most of it. Um, and had highs, lows, gambled away fortunes. I mean, it's a, a tumult of a life. And here he was having a peaceful walk through green spaces and kind of looking at everything like a child might, you know, with a real sense of wonder and so on. And I just, and, and, and it was entertaining. So they're not, they don't have to be one or the other. 
You know, I, I mean, I don't know if it is post-COVID or it's just coincidental, but I think I do think there's an appetite for more slow TV, something that's yeah. more slightly more soporific, like um, like Bob Mortimer and the Fishing Show. Yes, and absolutely. Alexa Sale does a thing where he cycles through London, and that's only online. Yeah. And it's, it's he doesn't do much; he just cycles his bike through London and chats while yeah. he's doing it. Well, I, I think there's a thing. I there's a, a producer that taught me a thing or two, my dear. He ended up being Tony Blair's PPS. Is um, um, an ex MP called Bruce Grocott, and um, Bruce had a very good read on people on TV who could be watchable. And he had a test um, which was, you know, you'd be watching somebody and they'd be talking and we'd all be hanging on their every word. Mm -hmm. I remember Bruce saying to me once, if he was talking about chain link fencing, you'd listen. It's interesting. And uh, there is something about that. And the examples you mentioned, Alexi Sale and Bob Mortimer and so on, there is, even if I am never going to catch a fish on a river or cycle through London, for God's sake, I'm really interested in someone who is enthusiastic about either of those things. Because what you're watching is the enthusiasm. And enthusiasm is an absolutely hypnotic thing in, on TV. Mm. You know, expert on barbed, barbed wire fencing in Nevada, 1834. If that's that guy's pet subject and he's enthusiastic about it, I'll listen. Scott's Care. But there's a couple of things I do want to talk to you about. You, you're talking about education, entertainment, information. A programme that you did that I think ticks all those boxes was uh, Crime Watch. Now, mm. now, the thing about that is, did you feel that you were a kind of custodian of a British institution or did you feel that you could have gone in there and shook it up or were you the guardian of what has gone before there uh well it's a it's a bit of all of those things i mean i think when i came into crime watch it it it, it had sort of i don't think it was in the best possible place i i think it had been rather formulaic for a long time a long time and it had become a bit like a telethon um uh but what i was brought in to do and was determined to do i was only there two years before I, I, I went to the one show. But what I wanted to do was to have uh, the coppers who were investigating the story, the, the cases, um, narrate them. I, I, you know, because I felt the idea of um, two presenters narrating all the stories. It was, do you know what? I just had this feeling. It was a bit like two very well-educated public school presenters, all very fine, terrific um, uh, at the presenting job. But there they were narrating stories about working class people killing themselves in pointless fashion in uh, the, the back streets of big cities. And they just felt something out of kilter with the Britain I understand and know in it. And so um, I, I felt my job was to was to get, try and get and the police involved. And as as you may know, you know, you talk to policemen about their day jobs and he or she will be vibrant and interesting and informative in, in the deepest ways. And then they stick a collar and tie on, you put a camera in front of them, and all of a sudden they talk as if they are proceeding in a northerly direction. <laughs> and I, and I just I, I kept saying to them, you're not going to get the sympathy for people to ring up and say, I know the guy who did this. Yeah. But if you're sitting in that car in a car park with a polystyrene cup of cold coffee, 
at four o'clock in the morning wondering whether you whether you can get this paedophile that's produced these dreadful images of these kids then people will want to help you more and so that that i thought was my job to try and to try and sort of make crime watch just a, a bit more um reflective of uh, of the world we were in but i, I loved it and yes I, di I did think i mean from its early days and, and right the way through it was a proper function and and a great example of TV actually achieving something by the involvement of the people who watch it. Now, you're kind of taking things a bit easier now, but I've just got a couple of minutes left and I did want to ask you about something else you care about. It is the Scots Care charity. I mean, why do you support the work of Scots Care? Well, I, yeah, it's it's back to I remember those early days in London. I mean, I don't know if uh, Scots Care. I, I, I didn't know about Scots Care, um, and uh, and I wasn't in deep trouble. I was just in deep poverty and a bit fed up. But um, I think I've been lucky. I was, you know, blessed with parents that did everything they could for me. I've had a fortunate career. I mean, I, I'd like to think I've made my good luck and so on. But a lot of it does depend on good luck and having good mentors and people and. And, and lots of people had that I know had many of those things and came off the rails and and so on. So life can be a bit of a lottery. Um, you don't get what you deserve, and um, and that's the way it often is. And and I think you just you want to put a bit back. And uh, before I was a journalist, I was a community worker and I ran adventure playgrounds in quite tough areas in Newcastle and and so on. So. I've always um, wanted to be involved in in, in communities and uh, and with people. And when I discovered Scots Care, I, mean, I was just sitting in the doctor's waiting room and I just saw a pamphlet on the wall, are you a Scot in London, could you help? And I thought, well, yes, I can now. And uh, so that was it. And, but the best thing about Scots Care is whatever I've put into it in my sphere, which is, you know, some of it on the media side, but on a week-to-week -week basis, a, a couple of old boys that I've looked out for consistently for the last five years. Whatever I've put into it, I've got back in spades. I've been really lucky. And uh, and I think Scots Care is a wonderful opportunity to just, you know, reconnect with people that, you know, you might not come across every day and without any kind of patronising or we're all equal in this and uh, and I think that's a basic Scots quality that I quite like as well uh, and I think Scots care at its best embodies it. You mentioned a couple of old boys Doug you've looked after is that part of the befriending service can you briefly tell me how that works with Scots care? Yeah the befriending service is for uh, anyone who's a Scot in London who is you know vulnerable maybe just um, lonely or alone, there is a difference. Um, and uh, I've um, looked out for a couple of guys who are well into their 80s and, and they were just missing Scots around them. And they needed a wee bit of help with, uh, you know, some medical appointments and this and that. And uh, they just wanted the sociability that Scots Care can give in these circumstances. And I was very happy to do it and uh, and and enjoy it and look forward to it. And uh, I found two friends via Scots Care. They're, there's nothing of the client about them. They've become friends, and uh, th so that's what I mean about getting it back in spades. That's what Scots Care does. There's an equality to it, and I think that's the best thing about it.
Doug, thank you so much for speaking to me today. That's all right. I've enjoyed it and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. See you soon, Doug. All all the best, Marcus. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Scots Care. Working to make London life better for Scots and their children.